we're just blessed. So, um, okay. This is going to be a fun sermon series. I'm taking an approach that's a little bit different this year. At first, we're going to have some brevity to it. It's going to be some humor. Obviously, we'll introduce this sort of uh, concept, this murder mystery, this unusual suspects. And uh, I, I'm doing this for a particular reason. I think so often in the season of Easter, we overlook how difficult Jesus' death and resurrection was. Um, we'll say things like, well, Jesus died for my sins. But there's sort of a bland disconnect there, isn't there? Like, what does that really mean, Jesus died for my sins? So I want to introduce this kind of as a, as a whodunit. This is a little bit like if you ever played the game uh, Clue. It was the butler in the kitchen with the knife. You know how you get to that conclusion? Um, Jesus' death is not a mystery, but identifying the, the murderers, if you will. I mean, that is how severe this event was in history. Um, and, and we have arguments today where we, we make it a theological concept. I, of course, I'm holding the hammer. I'm the one to put the nails in his hands. Uh, there's some very anti-Semitism that goes around about the Jews who killed Christ. Um, there is the awareness of the inner circle that denied him, that his disciples left him. There's the crowd that shouted crucify. So I just think there's a sense that there's a mystery still that we don't fully comprehend how Jesus' death came to be, historically, politically. So we'll get into some of those spheres, if you will, the next, next few weeks. And it is kind of a murder mystery, but I, I have to approach this from recent weeks. Anybody following the, the Eric Murdoch trial? Some of you are a little obsessed about it. So let me tell you how murder mysteries work for me. Now, in my life, I do things in really simple segments. So I watched the show Bones. Anybody ever watched the show Bones? Big fan. It's got like nine seasons. It takes me, it probably took me, I don't know what, 10 years? If, I, if it was left up to me, it'd take me about 10 years to get through the season. And here's why. I love my lunch hour. I will have a half hour, 20 minutes to watch part of a show while I'm eating lunch. And then I'll take a 20 minute to a half hour nap. Now forgive me, I'm a big fan of naps, okay? Don't hold that against me. I'm a sociopath? <laughs> like, that's the trigger you come up with? You're like, if you only watch 20 minutes of the show, you're a sociopath. You're in that camp. So, it's, you're in my illustration. Don't worry. You're, you're coming. So my wife catches one of those 20 minutes slots, and she goes, oh, that's interesting. And she catches the part where there's the romance. Like, she's all about the romance. So in a matter of days, the next thing I know, she has hijacked my watching the show so that we watch it every night. Not just one show, three shows. Like, this is constant. Where she goes, you want to watch another one? 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 Now, who's all looking at the person next to you? You're rolling your eyes. You're like, that would be you. You obsessive person. Why do we watch this? So, here's what I'm leading into. Eric Murdoch's been on trial for like two years. Alec. Alec. Did I call him Eric again? Dang it. I've been calling him Eric this whole time. She already knows more than me. This is what's so scary. I introduced this to her two days ago. Only reason I introduced it is because evidence 
came out that I don't want to let the cat out of the bag, so, you know, spoiler alert if you want to plug your ears. But the son who was murdered caught the murderer. Like, that's crazy. There was this piece of evidence that came out that he recorded something. No, not the first murder. Not the first murder. This is not, this is not the boat murder that the son did. This is the murder. No, this is the one that got shot. What was she talking about? We're not, oh yeah, we're not there yet. Okay, okay. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I, I, I put this sermon series together and, and everybody I've talked to, Jordan is like, ooh, I'm so excited. So we do this drive and I introduce this to my wife and she has become obsessed about it. Within a matter of a half hour conversation, I thought, we're just on a drive, let's talk about it. She, the next day, we go to the farm sale. She's like, oh my goodness, I know all about it. <laughs> And do you know about it? Did you know about it? And I'm going, I don't know. How do you know all this? And she's just looked it all up. And we all know that moment where it kind of gets to you and you're like, I gotta know. I think there's something to be said about that at Easter. We should want to know, really want to know, how did Jesus die? Why didn't he get the opportunity to die of natural causes? Would he have died of natural causes? What about cancer or disease? It's prevalent in Jesus' day. And how did this person who lived a righteous life that no one can condemn get to a place that everybody hated him and at the very least left him? Why? Um, there was this game when I was a kid, and so I've sort of redone it. But anybody ever do that? Who stole the cookie from the cookie jar? Who, me? No, not. Yes, you. Couldn't be, right? I got it wrong. I know I butchered it. Terrible. Let's see how I can do this one. Who betrayed Jesus the Nazarite? Who, me? Yes, you. Couldn't be. Then who? Then you get to pick somebody. Dylan. Dylan betrayed Jesus the Nazarite. He's going, who, me? Yes, you. Couldn't be. Then who? Who are you going to throw under the bus, Dylan? Aaron. He looks like a murderer. <laughs> who betrayed Jesus the Nazarite? Yes, you. Couldn't be. Then who? Stevie! <laughs> Not even in purview, and it's just no doubt. He's the one. I, I really hope we kind of ask that question. We see it as a, a, a about Jesus rather than with Jesus, right? That Jesus' death is still uniquely tied to us today. And I think as we explore some of the historical context, the political context, it might really open your mind to how this perfect storm really landed upon Jesus and ended in his terrible uh, death, his crucifixion. So let's start with the first question. It's often maybe a question we overlook, but can God die? In the Gospel of John, the prologue, it reads this. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him, and nothing was created except through Him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot ever extinguish it. Now, if I were to ask you that question haphazardly, and I just said, do you think God can die? Your immediate response would be no. 
And there's an honest reason that you would say no. And the reason that you would say no is that how can you put out the giver of life? Uh, you know, light has its own sort of unique science to it. So it's made up of little packets of energy called photons. And basically when you heat up the electrons and the atoms so hot and you make the energy source so intense that these photons will be released. And that's the light that is shown. So if I show you the simple flashlight on my phone, you're like, oh, yes, there is some energy from the battery source producing that light. And it might be from a candle, it might be from a fireplace, but it has to have energy that's heating it up, that's, that's sending off those photons. Now if I were to ask you, how do you put the light out? You're going to say, well, you just turn it off. Well, there's actually two ways, right? I could just cover it up. Now, I'm not putting the light out, and this is something that we should reflect on more in our faith, that sometimes when we don't see God, it's not because God stopped to exist. It's because something got in our way, and trust me, the enemy of the universe wants to get in your way. When you hear the whispers of doubt, of anxiety, of fear, that is the whisper of the enemy saying, you know what, I'm just going to get in between you and God. Now, God is still almighty and powerful, but if I can just create enough of a shadow, enough of a, a cast, an overcast, when you, you see the clouds and the, and the storm come in, that doesn't make the sun stop to exist, but it can make it feel like the sun is no longer a part of your life. And, and that's one way. But Satan knew that that's only a temporary way. The, the way you really have to get rid of the light once and for all is you have to get rid of the power source. But this is a challenge for this cosmic story for Satan himself. And the reason for that is that evil has a problem. Satan can only temporarily put out the light by blocking it from you. But to defeat God, Satan had to put out the source once and for all. Now, that is why we ask the question, can God, the creator of the universe, die? It is as if Satan was going to take a water pistol to the sun. Satan knows, and certainly all of us would know, there's no way to kill the light of lights. The light of God that spawned the universe that we know today. The billions of galaxies, let alone the billions upon billions of stars in those galaxies, that really put our sun to shame. It's not even the grandiose of stars. Who is that? How could that God die? Well, John's prologue is going to introduce what he's going to eventually end with. God becomes human. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gave light to everyone. And there it is. Was coming into the world. John 1.14 says it even more intimately. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What does that mean? Anybody watch the best of Superman? Don't get me wrong, the last ones have been okay. But Christopher Reeves is still the best Superman ever. And you can argue, I don't care. You're wrong, but you can argue. And I can tell you why. Because in the 1970s, when I was a kid, to watch Superman and the first Superman, and he saves 
and he's holding on to the uh, helicopter that was going to fall off the top of the skyscraper, and he comes down, and as a kid, I'm going, oh, that is amazing. Like, no CGI people, okay? They actually had this all, whole big set. So I was hooked. Superman 1, Lex Luthor is great. Then in 1980, they came out with Superman 2. Here's the thing that made Superman 2 really intriguing. In Superman 2, does anybody know what Superman does that really makes him weak? It's not kryptonite. Come on, anybody? He gives up his powers. He goes to his fortress, and he has that hologram of his father, and he says to his father, I'd like to be human. His father says, you're giving up your power that is helping humanity. Why would you do that? And Superman says, because I want to fully love. He wants to love Lois Lane. Without the barrier that is, he is superhuman. He is probably not going to ever die. She will get old and die. And he wants to share that humanity with her. But it comes at a price. Later in the movie, he is uh, still thinking. You know, he can't get it out of his head that he's Superman. And he goes into this diner, and somebody picks a fight with him. And the person hits him in the face. And he sort of stands to it because he feels like you're just going to break your hand. But it doesn't. It actually hurts him. And you see him lean over, hunched over, and blood starts to spew out of his mouth. And you go, oh, my gosh. Superman is human. You're catching on, right? The God of the universe, in order to identify with his creation, became like us. And by becoming like us, he opened himself up to the possibility of death. Now, God becoming human, by the way, is not new to uh, historical figures. Um, the pharaohs believed that they were the, the, the visible expression of the sun god, Ra. Uh, Japanese rulers, Chinese emperors, they had believed that they were the manifestation of their god. In fact, Antiochus Epiphanes, the, the Seleucid emperor, that adding the Epiphanes on is the manifestation of God. He believed he was the, the Epiphanes of God. Julius Caesar Divas Caesar, the divine Caesar. But there's a difference. Jesus did not claim to be God with a military fort and fortress around him. He didn't wait until he's of power. He claimed it as a peasant, as a Galilean carpenter. In John 8, 58, he says, Before Abraham, I was. In the vulnerable space among the, the Roman soldiers, among the religious leaders who could, as they eventually will, consider him blasphemous, he makes this claim. He lets them know that he is God incarnate, even though he is vulnerable. He needs to eat. He needs to sleep. And yes, he can be rejected. And that's what John is preparing us for. He came to his own people and even they rejected him. Now I'm asking you this morning, 
to play this out. Why would Jesus, ha- why, did the, why did being rejected have to become a crucifixion? Why did it have to lead to murder? To those all intending harm to him. Why couldn't rejection have just been that they left? Why didn't the disciples just decide this is too much and walk away? Why would one ultimately betray him? Why would the other deny him? And they all would leave him. Why didn't they just do it sooner? Why didn't they just consider what he's talking about was just crazy? The questions that come into this really ask us about who's to blame for that final, the final day. And I'm going to ask you this morning to not put that on those people thousands of years ago. I want you to deal with that darkness within us. Why do we, like the accuser, somehow, some reason, try to squash the light? Have you ever done this? Anybody ever been better than you at something and you just want to trip them when they're not looking? We used to do the thing that was like um, King of the Hill, right? You can't do that anymore because it's probably going to you know, break arms or whatever. But that was our, our full entertainment. Like we walked out as kids on the playground and like the school had brought in like the gravel pit. You seen that where they're going to spread it out over a parking lot or something? You're like... Yes! You didn't see a gravel pit. You saw King of the Hill. And so all of us would go over there. And it's always the older kid that could get up on the top of the hill first. And then they've got the high ground. And you're never going to win. So you keep climbing up there and foot to the face and rolling back down on gravel, right? Only to land in gravel and scratch and bleeding. You're like, oh. And now the mission is not, I don't care to be King of the Hill, but I'm going to ruin you. Right? You want to get his leg, you want to pull him down, you want to laugh in their face. Even for days after, I'll never forget wanting revenge on that person. You'd see him, you're like, it was just a game. And you're like, no, you kicked me in the face with your shoe. The only thing I want is your undoing. That's the feeling. Why do we have that towards Jesus? Why is it the one who didn't have a military but came with mercy and peace? Why is it still that he is rejected? I make this argument, this theoretical. I, I've probably told you I, I want to write the book, Praying for Bill Maher. Bill Maher is the comedian, political comedian, and he just hates religion. And I just want to sit with him someday and go, how do you hate Jesus? He's got all these, these antics about religion, and he always goes to the extremes. And I'm like, you entered the religiosity of that, that denomination, of that angle or perspective. You still will never be able to give me a reasonable argument to hate Jesus. And yet we do. Why? Why do you hate him so much that you want to murder, if you will? You want to, without restraint, do away with Christianity. Why? And at the very least, Christians, we're not outside of that. Why do we so readily quiet ourselves? We don't give a defense on his behalf. We are the Peter and the Judas. We are the crowd. We are in the crowd and they are yelling. Why didn't anybody bull rush the cross? Why? Why didn't they go after him and say, enough? This man did nothing to deserve this. Where were they? Who do you love that you would see be so badly portrayed that you wouldn't go over every other person around you to save them. And yet Jesus 
was murdered. God died. I don't want to tie it in a bow today. I'm just leaving this open-ended as we prepare for communion in a minute. I want you to consider the criminal triangle. This is what they use to decide if they can convict somebody, right? This is the not Eric Murdoch, the Alec Murdoch trial. Why was Jesus the target? And what was the person's motive? And who had the best opportunity to kill him? Believe it or not, I think you'll be surprised by the unusual suspects we will discuss in the coming weeks, break down why it is that they themselves had an internal disconnect from Jesus to either allow or to make his death happen. Stephen Avery is in the, the, one of the fun little Netflix docuseries. Does anybody know who Stephen Avery is? Making it. I'm a little worried about you, Jordan. You know these too well. He's got all these down. <laughs> he was wrongfully accused. Here's what makes the story crazy. He gets arrested again. He serves 18 years in prison. He gets out because he was wrongfully accused. They find out he's wrongfully accused. And then he gets arrested again. And now they think that that was suspect. Like, you can't get struck by lightning twice, can you? Or did he do it? Wait and see. Jesus was wrongfully accused, wrongfully tried, wrongfully beaten, wrongfully convicted, wrongfully crucified. And even then, he looks at his disciples at the Lord's Supper, and he says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Judas, go what you need to go and do. Peter, you will deny me three times before the, the rooster crows. Son, this is your mother. You take care of her. Why? Because I'm doing what I have to do. And nobody stopped it from happening. Father, forgive them for they have sinned. Right? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is the Jesus who was murdered. And I think there's, there's a place where we should come to that table and personalize it. God, forgive me. I think of it as an event some 2,000 years ago, but how am I still crucifying you, the church, your peace, your purpose? How am I still a sinner, fallen from grace? Because I think when you ask that, you'll find out just how much more he loves you, right? Would you pray with me? Lord, let us go on an adventure of a murder mystery with the most unlikely suspects. And we certainly couldn't fathom the worst things of this world, and yet we know left unchecked, it might also include us in some way. That our thoughts of anger and rage, frustration, resentment, jealousy, if they ever were allowed to leak out, all oh, the carnage they could leave. I pray, Lord, as we prepare for communion, we would come to it 
not something that is just a symbolic gesture or an event that happened thousands of years ago, but something that's still real, real meaningful today. That you live and reign knowing that we still sin. So we do ask, do you still feel the nails? Do you rub the holes in your wrists? Do you hurt when we fail you? Do you still feel the, the sting of betrayal? I know the event has come and gone, but I know that you still hurt when your people fail you. I pray, Lord, that we would acknowledge our role in that and also receive what is still an undying grace, how much you love us to forgive us. May you still sit upon that throne and that gives us hope. It'll give us a deeper sense of meaning about this life and how we would choose to live it, being given that freedom we didn't deserve yet knowing that you give it to us freely. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we close and just invite you to come down that center aisle and receive communion as you are able. Jesus said in Matthew 26, 26 through 30 at the Lord's Supper, this great banquet that they had, it was a meaningful event. It wasn't just a little wafer and a cup. It was a full banquet table. But at that table, he took the bread and he broke it. He said something different. He says, this, this is my body that is going to be broken for you. And then he took the cup of wine and he said, this, this is the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take drink. And the disciples, not fully understanding what they were being asked to do, ate the bread and drank the wine and received that first communion what Jesus ultimately fulfilled in his death, the death of a criminal on a cross, that his death gives us new life. And I pray that this would be a walk through Easter that you would celebrate what he did, the depths that he went, make it so much more meaningful now that you know how much he loves you and forgives you. Please, come and receive communion at this time.